episode number 22, Michael Gianfrancesco. And welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I am your host, Michael Cruz, once again. Wow, it's been a long time since I've seen you. October was our last episode. It's been a busy fall semester for me uh, at school and at work, so I wasn't able to get to any uh, more episodes. But I'm back. It's Christmas time here. It's December uh, 2015, and uh, I'll be working on a few episodes to get them up to get caught up. Uh, but first, in 1998, I did a show down in Kitchener-Waterloo with a young company out of Montreal, directed by, led by Christopher Wilson, uh, a fixture in the musical theatre world here in Toronto. Um, and the designer of that show, Michael Gianfrancesco, uh, was just out of Concordia University. Um, they had done several productions in Montreal when he was there. And now they'd come to Kitchener, back to his hometown, um, to design Into the Woods, which was a uh, lovely effort full of um, people you would consider stars, I think, these days in the, in the Toronto theatre scene. Um, and we worked, I was the lighting designer on that production, and it was uh, a lovely time. And since then, Michael Gianfrancesco has grown to become certainly on the A-list of designers here in Canada, working all over the country, uh, Stratford and Shaw included. And... In May of this year, um, 2015, uh, I had the pleasure to talk about his life and his career uh, and the show The Divine, a play for Sandra Bernhardt, which uh, he was working on at the Shaw Festival. But first, a reminder to go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast to give us your support, become a patron to make sure that we grow the show and continue interviewing designers from across Canada. Also, go to facebook.com uh, and Twitter. You'll find us, uh, the title block podcast there. Uh, follow us and uh, and share with your friends the episodes that you uh, enjoy here. And go to thetitlebloc.com for show notes uh, and links to uh, the people we talk about in the episodes. So that's about it. Thank you very much for the support of, uh, of the people who have signed up on Patreon. Uh, and I will uh, be getting out a few episodes over the next few weeks. Uh, for those folks first, of course, we'll have a first crack at it uh, on patreon.com. Uh, and otherwise... Uh, Thank you for your support, and here's my interview now with Michael Gianfrancesco. Michael Gianfrancesco, welcome to the Title Block. Thank you very much. And welcome, thank you for joining me at the Shaw Festival, uh, where we're meeting in Bill Schmuck's office talking about your life. And uh, we will be talking about the Stratford Festival as well, because you're down there as well. Uh, but why don't you tell us about how you started in this ridiculous business called theater? Where was the first time you thought it would be a good idea to be a designer? <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, it, in many ways, it's been a part of my life since I was in public school. Um, I went to schools that had um, you know, theater as an extracurricular activity and was always involved in, <clears throat> in that. Um, and when I got to high school, I went to a performing arts high school. And that's really where it started to come into focus for me. So we had to have, um, we had to choose majors from dance, drama, music, and uh, visual art. Mm -hmm. 
And I kind of loved, oh, except for dance, which I wasn't so good at. I, I loved doing all of them. And so the theater and theater design, to me, became a way to kind of keep my fingers in all of those areas um, without kind of losing touch with them. Because I did visual art for a long time. And, <clears throat> and I had always um, played piano and had a, music was also a big part of my life. And, and I liked started to discover the theater. So at the end of high school, I was determined that that was sort of the best idea for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I certainly had an early start in figuring that out. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Cambridge and Kitchener-Waterloo. Oh, right, another Kitchener-Waterloo. So, yeah, so I was at Eastwood Collegiate. Oh, of course. And went through their arts program there. Yeah, because Boschmuck is a KW of course. Boy as well. I know. It's kind of a pervasive, it's a very solid, like the KW is a very a font for people east in Ontario uh, to come into the arts. And then uh, what, uh, when did you commit to actually go into it as a career? Well, I left Eastwood and I went to Montreal where I had a number of friends who were studying there already. And um, I went to Concordia University at, to the design for the theater program. And I was partially drawn to the program. I was also, also drawn just to the city. I wanted to live in a big city. I wanted to be somewhere where there was a lot going on. And, and the city became, you know, an extension of my education there mm -hmm. in so many ways. You know, my friends and I were constantly going to the theater and to art galleries and shows right. all the time, in addition to what we were doing at school. So, so that's when it really came into focus. And I guess I just sort of kept, you know, um, decided that, that's where I wanted to be and that's what I wanted to do. And I just, I went there and it was a great experience. Uh, and who were you there with? What was your cohort? Like, were there, as, as far as the design program goes? It was a very small program. In fact, I'm not even in touch with anybody mm -hmm. anymore from that program. But I had a lot of friends at McGill University mm -hmm. at the time who were in the opera program. And I, I was really interested in, in opera. And so I went would often go to McGill like while I was studying and do shows there with the opera school and just kind of volunteer to, to work on their shows because I sort of thought they were more interesting. So, oh, that happens. That happens. And so, so I made a lot of friends and a lot of connections with people there in a way that I still um, maintain and work with in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, g give me an idea of what year was this? This is probably the early 90s, right? Yes, it was like I was there from like 1995 to 1998, which was a crazy time to be in Montreal. I showed up and the referendum happened. Mm. And then I left in the middle of the ice storm. And uh, so the last year I was there was the ice storm. And, you know, it was also, we were rehearsing a show and trying to find a place to rehearse and no one had showered in three days and you know, <laughs> the city was shut down. And so it's a very memorable time. It's such a fantastic time. Mm -hmm. and, where, and who hired you when you left? Like you, uh, did you come back to Toronto or to Ontario after you'd left? My uh, friends in Montreal and I actually started a theater company in Montreal. We were producing things outside of school mm -hmm. in the last two years that I was there. We were producing um, Sondheim musicals. And so, we came back to Ontario and uh, we decided to officially form a company. Mm -hmm. So that was the sort of the first thing I did when I came back home. And we applied for government funding and we got this enormous grant from the government, which was <clears throat> amazing and no longer exists. <laughs> and uh, 
And so we ran our theater company for two years and we produced musicals in Kitchener-Waterloo. Mm -hmm. So that was really the first thing I did out of school. We, we just completely created our own work right. for ourselves and for our friends. Mm -hmm. That seems to be something that uh, is a bit um, different than the, the more senior designers I've spoken to. They all have stories of uh, coming out and being hired by larger, more established companies. And there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurial ship going like doing self-production there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of people making establishing long-term companies like mm -hmm. uh, tarragon and uh, and Passmerai and factory uh, and a bunch of the regionals in the late 60s and 70s but there doesn't seem to be a lot of self-production whereas in the 90s and 2000s everybody who comes out of theater school seems to do their own show once they can't right. get any work right um, and so what, uh, now you, you eventually made it to Stratford as an assistant. That was your first sort of big apprenticeship position. Is that right? Yes. And I guess that came about to kind of trace that back. While I was at school, I spent a summer at the Banff Center mm -hmm. and met tons of people there. And um, that was the first real apprenticeship that I had the opportunity to do. And uh, they sent me the following year to... Houston, where they were developing a new opera called Jackie O, mm -hmm. um, where I worked with an assistant director who had been there that summer. And so we got to know each other. And through him, I, we, um, I got back to Toronto and he invited me to go do a show in New Brunswick. So that was sort of the first regional show that I ever did. And while I was in New Brunswick, one of my teachers from Concordia, Pat Flood, mm -hmm said to me, oh, you're going to New Brunswick, you have to meet Patrick Clark. And so I just thought, okay, so, you know, what do I do? And so she just gave me a... So I kind of just showed up at his door one day and knocked on his door and said, Pafla told me to come to your house. <laughs> and, uh, and he was very lovely and, and, you know, introduced myself to him. And eventually I, I worked with him for a couple of weeks on a show there and then that season he had been invited to Stratford and he asked me to be his assistant. That's a, that seems to be the way things go and as it, well. It's totally like, how do you explain sense. Yeah, it just sort of, you know, you're in a certain place at a certain time and you meet a certain person and somehow it all kind of unfolds. Yeah, exactly. Um, who were you at BAMP with? Who, who, was your, who were your instructors at a BAMP? I was assisting Terry Gunverdahl. Um, on a new opera piece, which was interesting because that also became a sort of a theme in, in the kind of work that I've been doing as well, the, these new opera works. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was, uh, he was designing this brand new piece that was being developed. And uh, I got to work with him all summer. That's, it was fantastic. That's great. It's a magical place to be. Yeah, indeed. That's what I hear as well. Everybody loves. I have never been to Banff, so it sounds like a magical place to be if you can get out there as a student, mm -hmm. um, or even as a young professional is looking to ramp up their career, it seems to be the place to go. What was your impression of Stratford when you first arrived as an assistant? This is what year? This is 1990? This was 2001. 2001, okay. I mean, Stratford was a place I had gone as a teenager during high school and with my family. So I was certainly aware of it. And uh, I guess I had never imagined that I would get a chance to work there. Like, you know, it... It was a place I certainly admired and really um, aspired to to be at, and and suddenly 
there I was with Patrick working with him. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very exciting for me. And I am, um, you know, I had done a, a certain amount of work on my own up until then. So I think I had an understanding of what, you know, what it took to put on a show. I'd done so many shows on my own with my friends and things like that. So to, to go and watch theater be created at such a high level was really an amazing experience to see, you know, how they make costumes and wigs and shoes and scenery and props with, you know, craftspeople of such a high, at such a high level was really, really, really exciting. And uh, it was a year when they had hired an entirely new group of assistants. Mm -hmm. So we were all there together and that was a great kind of bonding experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly have um, many friends from that time mm -hmm. who we still work to, we work together and socialize together. And That's terrific. Um, and you were assisting Patrick Clark. Who else were you working with at Stratford? Yeah, eventually. I, over, the, over my time there as an assistant, I worked with uh, Peter Hartwell, mm -hmm. Deborah Hansen, Ann Curtis from, from the other Stratford. Mm -hmm. And uh, those were the main designers that I worked with who, who are all completely different. And I loved that, having that experience, you know, working with them all, they all taught me something unique. And <clears throat> they were such great teachers and, you know, um, very, very pleasant to, to work with and to learn from. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I took some, something different away from from all of them. Mm -hmm. how, many, how many years were you there? I've done a total of 12 seasons to up until now. Mm -hmm. I did five as an assistant. Oh, okay. And while I was there, uh, Richard Manette had just built the studio theater. Mm -hmm. And so it was a great, again, it was a sort of a perfect timing kind of opportunity that in the past, the, the trajectory of a designer there was, you, you know, you would assist and then eventually you would get your first show. And that had stopped happening for a number of years. And with the introduction of the studio theater, it was a great platform for a young designer to, you know, cut their teeth on a show mm -hmm. there. And so we as assistants started, Richard started giving us opportunities in that space, which was really quite incredible. And so he hired me to do my very first show there. <clears throat> and um, and so that was sort of the transition for me out of assisting into into designing design. And um, you told me before your your big sort of breakout moment was out in Winnipeg. Is that right? Or, or the the show that sort of made you? I it was I I've I love doing musicals. I've always loved musical theater. <clears throat> and uh, Ted Dykstra who I didn't know at the time, got in touch with me and was interviewing people to, um, he was looking for a set designer for his, the Rocky Horror Show. And it was a co-production between MTC, or RMTC now. Right. They have royal status, <laughs> and uh, which they greatly deserve. And, uh, and Canadian Stage Company. Mm -hmm. And I had, I never really had to kind of sell myself, uh, you know, in that way. It's not a very Canadian thing to do, it seems. And so, but I thought this, I, it, the idea of doing the show really excited me and doing it with Ted. And so I sort of came up with an initial concept and I wrote to him and I said, well, you know, this is what I would do with the show. And, you know, I'm really excited about it. It'd be great. And, and then one day he just wrote me back and said, okay, you're doing the show. And, uh, 
And so it was the first chance I had to do a musical on a big scale, you know, with the support of a of a big theater, and and uh, and the process was was really fun and fantastic and inspired. I thought what Ted had to offer in terms of how we sort of planned the show and just our our design meetings and our process was really exciting mm -hmm. and kind of remained so throughout the whole process, which which was great. And so, and we were at a, um, a wonderful theater that has, you know, big shops and, and very talented craftspeople and carpenters and uh, to contribute to that process. So we, um, I, you know, we put together what I thought was a really exciting show. And that was a big moment for me to do a show that big. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then it came to Toronto after that. So, right. so you had the exposure both in the West and the, and the East as well. Uh, when did you first start designing um, at? So when was your first year actually designed, continued designing at, at Stratford exclusively and not as an assistant? I guess it was a year or two after doing uh, The Triumph of Love with Richard at the studio. Mm -hmm. um, I continued on there for a while. Um, up until uh, Richard's time was over and, and Des came in. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in that transition was when I actually came to the Shaw Festival. It's convenient. <laughs> so that was a very welcome invitation. And exactly. Exciting. I, you know, that same kind of excitement of going to a new place that is, you know, a really ad another admired theater that I've always loved. Mm -hmm. Uh, just before we get into the specific shows that you're doing this year at the Shaw in Stratford, um, I want to talk about the lifestyle of being a freelance designer, uh, just in case people are wondering what it's like and what to expect. <laughs> the glamorous right? it is. The gl I know. <laughs> um, uh, like, I think the, same, the, the two things that seem to be consistent, and you can agree or disagree with me about this, uh, is the, uh, at once the need to be constantly working um, and the the despite the fact that you you are constantly working there's a tenuousness about your success that um it seems to be uh, a source of i mean for me it was a source of low level but constant stress of you know everything's great for the next 6 months but then what yeah <laughs> right uh, describe what it's been uh you know what it's like for you and and whether or not uh I mean, obviously, you're continuing to do it, so it hasn't been overwhelming stress. But I think you know, you know I think you're right that <clears throat> that little bit of anxiety about what's coming up never really goes away for me. Mm -hmm. um, yet somehow, you know, it keeps going, <laughs> and so so there's you know there's the comfort in knowing that somehow things have worked out mm -hmm. and will hopefully continue to. I think. And I, I think it's something you just get used to, you know. Um, but you also get, I find I get a bit addicted to the um, the idea that there's always something new, mm -hmm. which is very exciting. You know, a new project brings a whole new group of people and a whole new play and a whole new experience. And so that that's what's exciting about it is it, you know, it, it doesn't get stale or, you, you know, the um, it's always inspiring having a new project to work on. Yeah. And in Canada, we seem to get, like you said, nobody does interviews. Like, I don't think, I think if you interviewed once, and that was for a company that was coming from outside of the country right. and looking for a designer. Um, 
like, are you comfortable with the with the referral process? I mean, you get referred a lot, I guess, by people. But um, how did you? With so many of the designers that have become successful that I speak to, it seems like, well, I got out of school and I had this opportunity, and then it just everything just sort of unfolded, right? Um, for many people, I, that, I imagine that doesn't happen, um, and I I wonder if there is a, a sort of trial by fire or something you have to go through to persevere in order to establish yourself. Uh, and, you know, do you have advice for new designers that are trying to break out? I mean, certainly when I started, I just did everything that I could. You know, I never turned anything down. I Any opportunity I had, no matter if it paid or didn't pay or even if it wasn't a project that I was completely interested in. But there's always something to be learned at the beginning and constantly, I think, <clears throat> with what we do. But um, I just kind of went out and did as much as I could. And and in, the, in that process, you know, you throw yourself into the world mm-hmm. of what we do and you just keep meeting people. I think you have to be amongst it <clears throat> for it to happen. And so, you know... I just kind of went and did everything I could find. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, you kind of become a little more selective when you can and mm-hmm. and start to define your style and the kind of work you want to do. And, and that comes certainly later on. But, but yeah, I mean, just not being picky at the beginning, you know, and just taking any opportunity that comes along and doing, your, you know, working really hard mm-hmm. that, like, that's certainly I think half the battle like and and establishing um establishing good personal work relationships with people one of my teachers said well you know the most important thing is just to be really fun to work with and there was so much wisdom in that you know little piece of advice I remember that she gave me because she was a really fun person to work with and 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 the, you know the combination of working hard and enjoying what you're doing, I think, puts you in a in a good place. And that's I think that's that's often half of it is is your approach to how you do your work mm-hmm. and how you interact with people because it's a collaborative art form. Yeah. And and what's a typical um, what's a typical work week for you? I mean, you must have lots of overlapping projects. And how do you manage to juggle? And what kind of negotiation do you go through to juggle that schedule with the people who are hiring you? I guess it depends sort of what time of year it is and and where I am. Um, Typically for me in the last number of years, being at Sean Strafford in the spring and summertime, um, I'm very much um, centered in either one of those those places. And often there's overlap. And so... You know, you want to get the schedule as early as you can, and often, you know, those those schedules are so complicated and they take so long to work out, and mm-hmm. and so, um, I guess it's something. You know, we I think we all work on numerous projects at a time, and you get used to that kind of multitasking or that allowing your brain to shift back and forth between ideas and projects and shows. And then there's the physical kind of dilemma of where am I supposed to be (laughs) like at what point in the week and Mm -hmm. and so yeah I guess it's something you certainly you certainly learn how to figure out and and identify Mm -hmm. you know 
I've certainly had had um, years where I've scheduled them very badly, and mm -hmm. and it becomes almost impossible to try and get between all of the projects. And and so you you know you learn how to figure that out and and know when to. Sometimes you have to say no to something because you know you physically can't just be there, mm -hmm. and that's so important. You have to be there. You have to be present. Yeah. And and uh, and tell me about the style. I mean, you, you talked about how it, it, you know the as a as a young designer, you're trying to figure out your own style uh, and your own tastes. Um, there was a quote by Ira Ira Glass. I, th I may have mentioned this in another podcast, and it's just because I'm a fan of mm -hmm. you know, that when you're oh, I think it was with Ronnie Burkett. I, when you're young, you've got very little skill, um, and the idea is to to work on those skills to get them up to a, a moment where you can rely on them consistently. But what you do have is taste as a young, you have a specific taste and you have to, have to trust in the fact that that taste is what's going to allow you to continue through as a designer. Um, do you, what, what have you developed in the first, you know, 10 years of your 15 years of your career? Like, what do you think, you know, your style is, what do you, what do you focus on when you're actually doing, uh, design. Um, that's such an interesting question because I think of like my my personal taste and and th I think of things that I discovered at a you know as a teenager and <clears throat> in visual art and and just aesthetically and and in a way how how those things are really still a part of my visual vocabulary and inspiration mm -hmm. and so there's that that through line from um over the years of things that have just remained with me visually and and constantly inspire me mm -hmm. but i mean because what we do is is based in a in a text mm -hmm. i guess it's it's taking what the the player the musical or the opera the dance piece that we're working on is asking is offering up and then finding within you know, my own visual world, what links up with that, mm -hmm. I, you know, that represents um, visually what I represent, what I think, but also serves the, the piece that I'm working on. So I think it's always kind of finding those connections, mm -hmm. going, oh, I've always loved this, and it, it's now a part of this world that's happening in this play, and how can I bring that to life? Mm -hmm. You kind of have to be a good, um, it's just like being a good artist, you have to be a good observer, and carry those things and tuck those things away Absolutely. for like, later. <laughs> totally. The the files, you know, either in in our brains and in our desks and <laughs> computers and and everything. It's yeah, it's it's sort of um figuring out a way to to constantly keep all of those ideas kind of organized and at hand. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, I I use books a lot. My apartment's full of books. Mm -hmm. So when I start often I'll go to like a specific book knowing that, you know, I collect books randomly and specifically mm -hmm. for, so that I've got that sort of at hand when I'm, when I'm starting to work on a new project. And so for instance, for the show that I'm working on at Shaw Festival this year, I pulled out a photography book that related to something that happens in the play. Mm -hmm. And in that book, there was one image that <clears throat> really fueled the, the design, right. you know, as an example of sort of how, but you know, and that's a random, you can't, you can't put a timeline on that 
process too, right? That's sort of what's sometimes frustrating. <laughs> You're like, well, I have to have an idea by next week, but <laughs> the idea comes when the, when the idea comes, right? I spoke to a designer this week. I won't mention who it is, but um, they were working on a project uh, for another company and they were stuck. They had writer's block is how they described it. And, you know, deadlines are looming and there's no idea. Right, nobody has either. The director hasn't given you an idea of specifically what they want, or you're just out. Right, you're kind of exhausted and out. Um, is, is there anything that you go to to inspire yourself when you're at that point where you're, you know, in between four shows and you've, you know, you're just, you're creatively exhausted from the first three, and now somebody's asking of something else of you. Uh, do you have a go-to place where you go, or is it just, is it really just random? I, I'll, I'll. I love to go to an art gallery mm -hmm. if I'm in that place, if I can get to one. Mm -hmm. That's certainly <clears throat> an inspiring place for me. And uh, Or I do something that's just completely unrelated. Like I stop working and I go do something kind of mindless mm -hmm. to let my brain kind of, you know, rejuvenate and come back to something. Sometimes that's sort of the best way to come up with ideas for, I find, <laughs> is to just go do something else and then let your mind wander back to what what you're working on mm -hmm. but um but visual art and and music like going to a concert again where there's less visual stimulus and allows you to kind of go to another um kind of state mm -hmm. um is very helpful for me mm -hmm. and and let's segue back into uh, at the shaw you're doing um what's the show you're doing at the shaw this year it's called The Divine, a play for Sarah Bernhardt mm -hmm. by Quebec playwright Michel-Marc Bouchard. Oh, right. Um, it's, it's funny. It, within the year, I'll have done three pieces by him mm -hmm. after never having worked on you know, his plays, which I've always really admired. And, and uh, last year, I did um, the English premiere of Christina, the Girl King at Stratford. Mm -hmm. um, we just did the... English premiere of Tom at the Farm and Buddies, and then this is the, thir the third Michel Marc installment for me, which is really exciting, and uh, because he's there with us as we're working, right. and uh, so we've just started rehearsal. That's terrific. And uh, um, how did you? Who, who's the director? Jackie Maxwell. Jackie Maxwell is directing. Uh, Bonnie Beecher is doing the lighting, and John Zosky is doing the sound. sound. I'll have a, a chance to speak with Bonnie on uh, on Friday, which is great coming up. Um, but so, tell me how you found your way into the play. Like you said, you discovered this this photograph that opened it up for you. How did that uh, I mean, work out? This process has been very um, luxurious in regards to time. In many ways, we had a read through of the play last August, mm -hmm. and so I was invited to that. And that's really the best thing to be able to come into a room and have someone read the play to you. That's, I find sitting down to read a play very difficult. It's like I can think of 10,000 other things to do, you know, like that's, and then, and then of course, once you start it, you're totally into it and it's enjoyable, but it's like that, that's always something I struggle with. And so to come in here, you know, a room full of amazing actors at the Shaw Festival read a play for the first time was very inspiring. And so I've been listening to that play over the last, you know, eight months as it's gone through revisions. And so, um, so it's been so nice to have that luxury of time and to think about it and, and ponder ideas and, and let it kind of 
simmer away. Mm-hmm. Give us a quick, uh, give us a quick uh, synopsis. What's the play about? The play involves three worlds: um, the world of Sarah Bernhardt, the worlds of um, the Grand Seminary in Quebec, and a shoe factory. And so it's uh, the meeting of characters from these three different worlds. And um, the it's based around Sarah Bernhardt's visit to Quebec City in 1905, mm-hmm. uh, during which the Catholic Church tried to shut down her performance mm-hmm. and, uh, and centers around that idea. Wow. Uh, and how, so how, what was the concept you guys came up with? How do you reconcile those three worlds and represent them on stage? I mean, Michel Marc, he offers up really beautiful stage directions. That's the one thing I love about his writing is that he gives you an idea and an inspiration, but he doesn't, <clears throat> he doesn't tell you that there's three forks in the drawer underneath the kit, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's really, um, he offers up just the right amount to get you going and to get you into the world and, and of what he's created. And so um, the, the, the intention of the play is that it's set in the dormitory at the seminary mm-hmm. and that all the other worlds evolve out of that space. So we're constantly in the dormitory through the show, mm-hmm. but it turns into the shoe factory, it turns into Sarah Bernhardt's dressing room, it turns into the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be at the Royal George Theater which is, it's as in that last scene in the theater, it's, it sort of lends itself beautifully to the play because we're in a theater. That's terrific. And are you doing a lot of, um, is there a lot of different set elements to, to bring us out of that room? Or is it just accoutrement or, or props? Or? It's a lot. Of, we start off, we see the dormitory with a sort of lineup of beds. Mm-hmm. And there's a window um, in a wall at the back. And then within that space, the beds get removed and different pieces are moved in in transitions that take us to those, those different environments. And as we move and go back to those environments, the, the worlds start to kind of mesh. Mm -hmm. So something from one of the other spaces will end up in Mm -hmm. another location and they all start to kind of bleed together. Mm-hmm. Are you doing the, uh, you're doing the costumes as well? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, how do you, uh, I imagine it happens all at once. Or are, there, are there two real separate processes for you to do the set and the costumes? Or how do you think about them in you know, terms of each other? I always think about them together. But I, uh, if I'm doing both elements, I u- usually start with the set. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it, it kind of roots you in the world and gives you the background and what's in <clears throat> against um, what the costumes will be in front of, and so so often I I start with the scenery, and and once that world's established, then I can get into the to the costumes. Mm-hmm. And and uh, how do you feel about working down on a large machine like this? I imagine it must be quite enjoyable as a designer to not have to worry about. You know, we will find a table that will be pretty close, if not perfect. And if not, and we have the budget, we'll build it. Yes. Like, that must be quite different than doing independent theater. Uh, and like, will this fit in my car? Will <laughs> I be able to get this <laughs> back? <to me?" laughs> 
Is there something you miss about the independent stuff when you work down here? or I mean, I do both in tandem. So um, it, I do kind of love the experiences of, of both kinds of, of theater. I, I love going out on my own and looking for stuff and bringing it back and mm-hmm. painting it and you know being a part of that independent theater process. But you kind of get to f- flex your design muscles in a different way at, at a, a theater like the Shaw Festival or the Stratford Festival. And, and you really focus on your ideas, what the idea is, not how am I going to make it happen. But mm-hmm. And then having the support of all of the different departments. And, and that collaboration, being able to work with someone who's making a piece for your show, I love that experience, you know, talking about how we're going to build it, what does it have to do, what is the finish on it, you know, what are the materials that we're going to use, and getting other people's input on, you know, um, it's like, you know, the best idea wins. Is I, I love when someone brings something to the table and says, well, you know, this is okay, but what if we did it this way? And you're, you know, that's such a great um, aspect of what we do, and that that collaboration is very satisfying. I was going to ask how your communication strategy changes as well, because I guess as a when you're doing small independent theater, working with one props person, uh, or sometimes sourcing stuff yourself, uh, I imagine you can use a lot of shorthand and say, "I'll know the right lamp when I see it." Exactly. So it's true. You have to then, when you're working with a big team of people, <clears throat> you have to communicate really well. And, you know, you have to provide reference or drawings or you have to be able to tell someone exactly what it needs to be without doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's a great skill. That's certainly a skill I learned, you know, as I started working in in bigger theaters. But having that experience in the independent theater, especially early on, I think is really important because that's how you that's how you learn what someone else needs as well after you've done it yourself. Did you do a lot of training when you were at Concordia on the actual crafts uh, that you required other people to help you out with? Like, did you do, I can't imagine, there's a lot of furniture building, you know, We did shops, some but. prop building. We did a lot of, I did a lot of set painting. Mm-hmm. We did some costume building. We got a pretty good overview mm-hmm. of um, what it was like to, you know, we had to do running crew backstage um, things like that. So it was a, it exposed all of the mechanics of how a production was put together. Right. And, and do you think that it makes, this might be an obvious question, but do you think it's possible to be a designer and not know, for example, how scenic art works or, or even be a good scenic artist? Uh, or can you get away with saying, you know what, I can do a small bit like this. I don't know how you're going to make it into a big drop, but... Does that, like, can that work, or do you have to really do the training as a scenic artist to be a good scenic designer? I don't know. I, I think that depends on, you know, who you are and how you... If you can, if you can create a scale rendering mm-hmm. that communicates all of the information, then you don't, you know, you don't need to know how to, to scenic paint. I think you need to, you need to know how to talk to a painter. I think that's what's important. You know, I couldn't paint a giant drop, <laughs> but I had to, but... but um, you need to know what to look for and what to ask for and, and what kind of dialogue to have to get, you know, what you, what you, the final result of what you're hoping for. And how does it work? I am curious, because again, I'm not a scenic artist. How, um, when you paint something small, uh, there's a certain scale. If you work at a small scale, you use techniques that probably are different mm-hmm. than working at a large scale. Um, how do you show... And, and communicate, for example, breakdown uh, or 
how do you ensure that, um, you know, once this thing is blown up to a big thing that you've got the amount of detail that you need that's impossible to show in a small in a scale? small scale. Yeah. I think it's a combination of knowing your space and the kind of theater you're in and what what's going to read mm-hmm. in terms of the scale of the space and the audience's relationship to the stage. You know, you're constantly adjusting for that, you know, if you're at the courthouse theater, it's almost like doing a movie. Mm-hmm. You can really um, revel in detail. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're on the, the main stage, you're going to <clears throat> um, do a different level of contrast and detail and to get, to, you know, to get the visual idea across. But I think um, like for, for the floor, for the divine, the inspiration were the stone floors of the seminary. And so I worked with Gwyneth on, um, you know, we talked about the color of the floor and the kind of texture in the floor. And she came back with this idea where she had taken a rubber squeegee and cut ridges into it and was dragging it across the floor and presented this as, a, as an idea to achieve the texture we were talking about. It was a beautiful idea. And, you know, as a, so, she, you know, she really brought to the table this, all of these kind of techniques mm-hmm. to make the, the concept or the, the idea happen in reality. Right. So as long as you can, as long as you can share the emotive content of whatever it is you're trying to create and make sure the other person understands that you'll come up with something that is appropriate. Maybe not, maybe not, it's not identical to the model, but it'll be pretty close and express what yeah. you're trying to express. Exactly. And that, you know, the painters who have been painting scenery for these theaters, they know they contribute a lot because they know what's going to read and what's going to, mm-hmm. to work as well. So, so, you know, I often rely on their suggestions. Mm-hmm. That's a great lesson for everyone. Um, so just give me a second. Was there any other questions I had about the diviners? I don't think so. Okay. So the next thing, or the thing you just, you just actually finished doing The Sound of Music. Yes. At Stratford. Now, Michel Marc Bouchard, this, he's a, actually a playwright in residence here at the Shaw. So yes. This is a brand new piece that no one's seen before. It's a brand new, developed, right? Exactly. Um, how does that compare to working on something that everybody <laughs> knows, right? The audience has certain expectations. They know the movie. They know the TV thing that happened. Yeah. They know they've seen it probably several times before. How do you compete with those preconceived notions when you're designing something like Sound of Music? That's, we've discussed that a lot. That's funny you, you bring that up because... Um, I had actually only watched the movie maybe once before working. It was just a movie that I never really watched a lot. So I was able to come to the show with a kind of fresh mind, which I was grateful for. And, and, uh, and realized, you know, The Sound of Music isn't a show that you're going to come up with a concept for. It's a show that you need to, you need to do. And um, because of what it is, it's set in a very specific time period, um, Historically, what's going on is is was real. You know, you have to respect all of those things. And so, um, our challenge was um, how to make the sound of music come alive on the festival stage. And Donna Fiore, the director, is you know an expert at that. She's been staging musicals there for a long time and really understands that space and and how to use it and how to take a take a proscenium show. I mean, the show is written for a proscenium, the way that it's structured. You know, 
you can tell as you read from scene to scene that a curtain's supposed to drop in and the scenery's supposed to change a stage of it while something's distracting you and nuns are going by in front. And so, you know, you can't do that in that theater. Everything is exposed. So we had to figure out how does the show move from place to place completely in view. So that was a really exciting um, aspect of, of designing sound and music um, was, was how to make, and you know, you're said in the festival theater, a good portion of it has to stay there. And so, you know, how do you take something and change it without changing it drastically? And that's what's so powerful about that space. You can put three things out on it and it feels like it's a completely different location. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to change drops and fill in, fill in the picture completely. It, it's a completely different approach. Mm -hmm. and, and for those people who don't know, I mean, I can't imagine anybody doesn't know what the festival stage is, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, th it's a thrust. It's a Shakespearean, like a model of the, uh, of the globe theater in London. It's, okay. you know, and it's set, right? So you've got inner, uh, inner below, inner above, and you've got a balcony and you're kind of stuck with that. Bombs. How much, uh, how much can you change in the festival theater? Like, can you change the steps? Can you, you can take out the balcony in the middle mm -hmm. and there, and, um, it leaves a big opening mm -hmm. and we've put in, um, we've designed our own balcony and our own show floor. Mm -hmm. The musical always requires generally a larger floor than mm -hmm. what the theater in its original state has to offer. So we put an entirely new deck right over top. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then we have pieces that surround the doorways and get applied to the space as well as, uh, our unique balcony mm -hmm. for the show. Didn't Carousel a couple of years ago do a revolve in the festival? Do I remember that? It was, um, there have been revolves for the musical. Um, I believe Hello Dolly had a revolve. Um, I can't remember some of the other. I think the, they did Sound of Music in 2001. I think it, it might have had a revolve mm -hmm. as well. It seems like a giant machine to put in that <laughs> space where you're doing, you know, Hamlet the week before. It's enormous. Before. Well, and the, you know, the idea of the changeover, I don't know if you've talked about that. But. Yeah, we have not talked about that on the show, but how massive and... and That's a whole show is. unto itself. Well, we should probably talk about that at some point, yeah, but yeah. how you... Um, do, do you design, when you design a show in there, do you have to take into account that it's going to be broken up into bits? Or do you, do, do the TDs really... The TDs, that's what's so you know, great about working with those people is they let, you know, you design your show and, and at the beginning you don't think about it and they, they let you figure out what you want to do. And in the process of, of um, budgeting and, and um, construction drawings and all of that, they figure out, you know, how it's going to break apart, how it's going to store and, and all of that. So it doesn't, and it rarely affects, you know, the, you make decisions along the way to accommodate it, but it rarely affects the overall aspect of, of what you're doing. But it's a it's a big concern, and so you try and make choices as you're working. Like, well, if we have to break this in half, where's the best spot to do it? But um, but they they're amazing at figuring all of that out. And uh, as far as the sound of music goes, what were the choices that you made then? No, it's an I imagine it's not something you can do. Like no one's doing the modernized version of the Sound of Music. Like no, the are, Sound of Music is the Sound play. of Music. It's yeah. 1938, yeah. And, and there are sailor suits and right. uh, you know all of that <laughs> right. great stuff. So, um, our choice was to really root the set in the house, mm -hmm. 
and then have it transform from there. So, and it's amazing with lighting how you can isolate and let things fall away in the background and, you know, and pull your eye, pull your focus to, to different spots when you don't want to see something. Um, and so, so, you know, by rooting it in the house, we then w would go to the Abbey with an addition of wrought iron gates and um, <clears throat> the, we could go for sort of from interior to exterior with the same set based on how the furniture appeared and things like that. So that's terrific. Um, and how about working? Um, we've got about uh, 15 minutes left. Let's talk about how the differences in how the two environments work. I mean, uh, I spoke to Bill Schmuck yesterday and he suggested it'd be a good idea to have sort of team Stratford, and team Shaw together to have a conversation about the differences between the two the two buildings, not only how they work technically, but how they work uh, culturally. Um, what's your experience? You were down there for several, well, you've been down there for many years, and as an assistant, you've seen the, you've seen the workings of the place. Um, how do you change your, uh, your own process when you're working between the two buildings? Um, and, and I always do this, I ask 18 questions at once. Okay, <laughs> how do you change your own process? And how do they generally differ culturally, do you feel? I think, you know, in the way that the festivals are programmed is very different. Um, the Shaw Festival's mandate being centered around a fairly specific time period really defines it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there's something really great about knowing that, you know, you're living in that world and 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 that the way that everyone here works and knows that era in the costume shop and in the prop shop. and and how the stock, the costume stock and the prop stock is rich with stuff from that time period. So it's very focused. Right, you'll always be able to find a tweed suit. <laughs> exactly. Or the, like festival, right? the best selection of typewriters. You know? That's, right. That's right, or tuxedos for that matter. Um, and so, you know, and then, you know, the Stratford Festival being anchored by Shakespeare, but then the rest of it is really quite open and, you know, is programmed in a completely different way um and so you know they could be working in any time period on a play from any era and so so the the other half of what Strafford does is much different in that way so you know their warehouse is full of like the strangest things <laughs> i guess deciding what you keep down there is the big decision right? um well that's very interesting and how about the 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 process, like a, uh, down here, I don't know Stratford as far as our process goes. Down here, I imagine just like any other kind of rep house, you have to back up the process so many months that you have to yes. make decisions so yeah, far yeah. before. How do you cope with that? Is, is it similar between the two? Uh, yeah, it's very places? similar, yeah. I think. And it depends when your show is. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're working on the musical, often you're the very first build. Mm -hmm. So you're going into the scene shop in September. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, um, you know, that's early. And so... You know, you're working with the director in the summer mm -hmm. trying to get the show sorted out. In the case of the show I'm working on at Shaw this year, being a new play, you know, we're getting revisions. You know, last week we got revisions. So so I'm. it's interesting trying to fit that process into the environment of a place that, you know, does plays that normally everybody knows. And so I've been really holding off on, you know, finishing things right. because of the changes that have come our way and, and trying to to work in tandem with the process of the play developing. 
So, um, so there's things we're still working out as we're in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is kind of different down here. Everything is so, they're so used to doing plays that are 100 years old that uh, a brand new play, you're, those decisions, like once you go down that road, you often can't come back up it. So you have to kind of deal yeah. with what you've got, right? Yes and no. I mean, the theater's been very supportive in terms of, you know, supporting that process too and, and realizing some things aren't going to be figured out until you know, halfway Absolutely. through rehearsal. So. Right. Um, and what are you up to next? Now, uh, you've got Sean Stratford. Um, it's going to take up the next couple of months, probably, or the next month at least. Yeah, uh, I think we work until the middle of July mm -hmm. at Shaw. Do you get a break and before then you a, start Yeah, and then it's a September? little break. And then um, I'm going to Montreal in September to work with Peter Hinton mm -hmm. on a production of Funny Girl at the oh Siegel Theater. So oh my God, that seems I'm really like a, excited a about dream that. Project, I know it's it? going to be a blast. I think. That's I'm, terrific. So, um, so we're just, I'm just getting started. You know, I've got things sort of happening with that now. So mm -hmm. getting that going. Is there something that you've always wanted wanted to do that you have not had a chance to do? Yeah, I mean, you, you love musical theater. Is there like your dream production you want to work on? I mean, besides Funny Girl <laughs> Peter Hinton, come on. I'd love to do uh, some more ballet. Mm -hmm. I'd love to do some more opera mm -hmm. on a bigger scale for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess I never, I mean, I certainly have favorite shows and things like that, but it, it's more about the combination of people involved and, mm -hmm. you know, getting the chance to work with a great team of people mm -hmm. on something is what I really look forward to. Yeah. Um, and just a bit, like a few more questions on um, training and lifestyle. Um, this business tends to take a toll on people's personal lives. Uh, it's, I mean, it's difficult to sort of establish one, especially when you're doing the cross-Canada kind of circuit where you're never in the same city you know, more than a few <laughs> weeks, and you come back to Toronto for a couple, and then you're back out again. Um, how do you manage that? Do you think it's, it's uh, like, the, are the trade-offs worth it? I mean, obviously, you're still in the business, so. <laughs> it's challenging, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just try and find as much time as I have to spend with my friends and family when I can. And But, you know, it's, and it's certainly something I think about, especially now, you know, it, all of a sudden, you think, I find myself thinking about it more and more and trying to figure out how to carve more time mm -hmm. out for myself mm -hmm. um, and how to do that without, um, you know, having too little work or too much, you know, the balance, trying to figure out the balance, it's, it's constantly, you know, a challenge. Yeah. And do you, um, do you think that there was any deficit in your original training, do you think that theater schools are not covering stuff that they should be covering? That you went, why didn't they teach me this when I was in school? I spent like years making mistakes. Like, was there any gap that you feel? Um, I mean, the out? program I went through, it wasn't a very technical program, which actually I liked. I liked coming away not being kind of obsessed with with the technical aspect, and it was more concept based. So I was grateful to have that in a way. You know, you can always learn about how something is done, but just, I, I, I enjoyed how we were taught to, to think about the process. Um, I think, you know, when you're, when you're studying, the most important thing is just to be inspired and, and figure out, um, like you said, what your visual world is and what your style is. And, you know, the rest, you, you know, it's, it's a, in a way, it's a very old fashioned kind of, um, career where you do, you know, apprenticing and assisting and 
is really kind of how you build up your knowledge and working with other people. And, and it all kind of accumulates, I think, mm -hmm. you know, um, that makes sense. Uh, and any suggestion, any, I mean, that seems a good, really a jumping off point for good advice to new designers. I mean, experiencing life is the best thing you can do to recreate it on stage. Uh, but is there anything you think people should do to prepare themselves for a career in theater uh, outside of finding a good program? And, and get a lot a of mentor? sleep early on. And then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can no, see that um, many things. Again, I think find find the people that you admire and and approach them mm -hmm. and ask to work with them, you know, or find a director that whose work you're excited by and and you know and put yourself out there and you know make a make a portfolio so you can illustrate to people what you do and um, and work you know work hard. <laughs> That's a great note. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. Uh, good luck and break a leg over the summer. Thank you so much. Great. Michael J. Francesco speaking to me from the Shaw Festival in May of 2015. Next time, letting designer Bonnie Beecher. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the Tuttleblock CA and on Facebook.com forward slash the Tuttleblock podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the Tuttleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it as you lament not being able to see Peter Hayton's version of Funny Girl. Can you believe it? Man, I'm sorry I missed that. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block.